0: Hey, friends, Christine here. I just want to put a little disclosure before this episode gets started. In case you may possibly have experience with domestic violence in your own personal life, or if it's something that you're going through right now, please just be advised that we will be talking about some testimonies and stories that may be triggers for various traumatic experiences that you may have endured in the past or are presently enduring. So please just know that this episode does contain sensitive topics and sensitive stories designed to offer gospel hope and help. But at the same time, please just proceed and listen with your own discretion in knowing that some of these stories are difficult to share and I'm sure difficult to hear as well. Hey friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chappell, and I'm so thankful you're here to join in on today's conversation with Joy Forrest. Today we'll be talking about her book, Called to Peace, A Survivor's Guide to Finding Healing and Peace After Domestic Abuse to discover how the gospel of Jesus Christ offers the resources necessary to turn victims into victors. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Joy Forrest has been an advocate for victims of domestic violence since 1997. She holds an MA in Biblical Counseling from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and held the position of Community Educator for Safe Space Domestic Violence Services in North Carolina from 2000 to 2001. She has also served as a biblical counselor in church settings and private practice since 2005. In January 2015, she helped establish Called to Peace Ministries to promote domestic violence awareness, particularly within the faith community. Hey there Joy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Christine. I appreciate it. In your book, Called to Peace, you lead off by stating that after leaving your abusive marriage, you finally understood how warped your thinking had actually become. Would you give our listeners some background about your story and explain what you meant by the comment that your thinking as a Bible-believing Christian had become twisted in the midst of that abusive relationship? sure
1: one thing i tell people is that you know getting somebody out of domestic abuse is sort of like getting somebody out of a cult and the reason for that is that our thinking changes little by little it's such a gradual process that we don't even recognize what's happening to us so for example you know when i first met my ex-husband he would get mad about something you know he, he would and i'm talking mad in atomic proportions you know and i learned oh i don't do that anymore now he I didn't have it as much before we got married as I did after the wedding. Um, Within a month of the marriage, those kinds of things were happening far more often. And so I was constantly trying to control my environment so that he wouldn't get angry. And part of the way that I could keep him calm was to try to think like he thought to Um, do what I thought was gonna make him happy. So basically, I was living in fear of a man. And over time, it just warped my thinking process. I, I took on his beliefs. And that's really what abusers will do. I read somewhere, I wanna say, it might've been one of Leslie Burnick's books, but the point of an abusive partner, what they are doing is they are systematically erasing who we are. We are not allowed to have our own thoughts. We are not allowed to have a different opinion. We have to conform to them and so by the end of being with this man for 20 some years i had completely changed in the way i thought about things and so um that included my opinion about scripture so um you know i had i started quoting scriptures to myself in a very negative way um i quoted you know malachi chapter 2 god hates divorce to the point it was like my mantra and i believed it to the point that i thought he hated divorce more than he loved me Mm. And so there were so many passages of scripture that I had just twisted. And, um, you know, I thought submission meant that I had blind obedience, really. And so I see that with so many of the women that we work with as well. Yeah.
0: As you recount your story in the book, you allude to the various excuses you made in order to justify staying in an abusive relationship with your ex-husband. Can you help us understand some of the flawed logic that an abuse victim might be wrestling with when they find themselves in a situation that they know is growing progressively, more and more dangerous, but at the same time, they don't want to leave? Well, two of the things that I
1: just mentioned, one was God hates divorce. And so I, again, quoting that scripture to myself over and over again and doing like so many people in the church do, I elevated my marriage above my life and my well-being. My daughter, who was 12 at the time, when things had really got, had escalated to the point of extreme danger, said, mom, why don't you just get out? And I said to her, well, because God hates divorce. And she turned around and looked at me and said, yeah, mom, God hates divorce, but he's gonna hate it a lot more when my mom is dead. And she could see much more clearly than I could. The fact that I thought I had to submit to everything was also part of the flawed logic behind the staying. And then too, we minimize it See, because most abusive situations are not abusive every day. So we have good times in between. We never know what kind of mood they're going to walk in the door being, but we have a lot of good times. I mean, he could be the life of the party. He could be fun. And so we would have good days in between the bad. And so they would kind of almost erase the bad days. And so you kind of just make excuses. Well, you know, and it's not like, I think a lot of women do blame themselves for the abuse. I didn't necessarily blame myself. I knew he blew up for a reason that was not valid, okay? So, for example, the time that he blew up and tore up the house because my daughter had used one of his hairbrush and hadn't returned it to its proper place and I couldn't find it fast enough. So, the in order to um, prevent something like that from happening again in the future, I went out and bought 17 hairbrushes just alike so that that wouldn't happen again. <laughs> I thought I had some kind of control over it, and I really didn't. But so we try to, we try to control it. We think, oh, well, it's not that bad all the time. We, um, we downplay it because, because, first of all, it's just not loving, and we don't want to admit that, the, that our husband's actions are not loving towards us. You know, when I would read 1 Corinthians thirteen four through 7, I was very uncomfortable with that passage that tells me love is patient and kind. It's not easily provoked and i had a husband who would be provoked at nothing so you know we don't want to believe the truth either it's a very painful truth to accept that our husbands are not act, are not being loving towards us and there and what they the way they treat us does not equate to love at all so that's a hard realization that most of the folks we work with have to come to and that's a, it's actually step number 1 to healing but it's also very difficult to accept
0: I was really heartbroken over an encounter you shared in the book detailing an evening when you were physically threatened by your ex-husband. I want to read it for our listeners. And as I mentioned earlier in the recording for the program, you know, I just want to warn about possible triggers for those who are victims or have been victims of abuse. But like you mentioned in your introduction in your book. I think it's important for this story to be told because as a church we need to understand the evil of domestic abuse more clearly. And so in the book you write, quote, on one occasion, Doug held a pocket knife to my throat and demanded me to deny God, saying that if I didn't, he would send me to meet him. We struggled until I was able to break free and run next door. The next door neighbors in our townhouse apartment couldn't help but hear what had been happening. They were Christians and they tried to encourage me to leave, but I merely rejected their advice as unbiblical. Now, as I read your story, I could sense the tension between your Christian faith and your hope for raising a Christian family, and yet the reality that you were being abused and mistreated in horrible ways. If someone is living with abuse in the home, how do the scriptures help to give us wisdom to know when it is time to leave the environment to pursue safety?
1: Well, I think that the scripture is full of examples of people fleeing for safety. And I think my favorite example is David fleeing from King Saul his father-in-law, so domestic abuse in some way, or at least family violence. And he left, even though I guess that, uh, you know, he felt that he was under his authority and that he should stay and obey, but he knew that his life was more important. There's nothing. Um, Jesus even gives David as the example of, you know, eating the showbread bread um, as, it was okay when David did it because he was running for his life, right? So we have that example. We have the example of Paul running and all sorts of people who, I mean, it's just natural, God-given human nature for us to run and to get away from danger. And so um, the, the problem I think that occurs for a lot of women who are going through abusive situations is that if it hasn't been physical yet, they don't know that they're necessarily in bodily danger, right? So they get confused about that. But one thing we have learned about domestic abuse is that physically, it's interesting to me, the overwhelming majority of the women I work with have had all sorts of physical symptoms. Migraine headaches are very common, thyroid dysfunction, autoimmune issues, stomach ulcers, and or gastric issues. And the same is true for their children, even high blood pressure. We've seen high blood pressure with children because they're living with so much stress when they live with domestic abuse. And it does not have to have been physical assault. So it is doing bodily harm, even if they're not punching them. And what we have found with domestic abuse is that it's progressive over time. So even if it hasn't been physical, it could turn that way very easily. I worked at the domestic violence shelter here in North Carolina back in 2000 and 2001. And we had a lady come through whose husband almost killed her. Well, she had been in a, a this marriage, a very, very controlling marriage for 30 years. And one day just told him she didn't like something or, you know, and she did, and she said it with fear and trepidation because she was always afraid. She always knew that there was that danger. And, she told him, you know, I don't want this for dinner. It was something that simple. And he got out a skillet and, and just started hitting and almost killed her. But she fell behind a recliner and the skillet started hitting the recliner. So then he could only reach her legs and arms. So when I met her, she was all bruised up. And this is after 30 years of no physical harm. So we never ever underestimate the potential of someone's situation turning violent if it's already very, very controlling. And I, I, I'm i sure that you've already talked, I know you did the podcast with Chris, so you've already talked about what domestic violence looks like. It is what we call now coercive control. So we've got a situation where some one person has very little freedom within the relationship and they're living in constant fear.
0: Well, speaking of more of the abuser's characteristics, maybe there's someone listening who is an abuse victim, but they feel like they are responsible for what has happened to them, and that if they could just do the right things, then maybe their partner will change and they can enjoy a satisfying relationship. What do victims and survivors need to understand about the heart of an abuser? Is it hopeless to expect that they will ever change? I don't think that it's hopeless
1: to expect that they will ever change, but I, I have never seen an abuser change without some consequences first. And so for me, what happens is we are taught to cover up. We are taught to hide it. We are taught to, uh, let's don't talk about that. Let's don't make them look bad. We're taught to elevate them. What we do when we do that is without allowing them consequences for their actions, Because domestic violence is so counterintuitive, we find that courts don't get it, so they often will just give uh, an abuser a slap on the hand or even just excuse it themselves. We find that the church doesn't seem to get it because abusers can look so good in public, and so, uh, again, very few consequences. But what it usually takes is a separation, at, at the very least, because if there is ever going to be motivation for change, it's usually when they've lost something. If you think about the Old Testament, the way that God tried to restore His people or you know, brought restoration to His people, but was by first allowing them to go into exile, to suffer the consequences of their own sin, that was God's love to bring them back to himself. And so I believe that they have to be willing to allow this this person to have consequences. But if they're going to do that, they also have to have a safety plan in place and they have to be very wise about how they do it. And then it takes somebody who is very skilled and knowledgeable about domestic abuse because you cannot counsel these situations like a normal marital problem. In fact, it's not a marital problem, so they have to, We have to work with both the victim and the uh, perpetrator individually for a long period of time and keep them separate so that they can work on their own issues. And when I say that, I don't mean that we need to work on anything that is suggesting that the victim is responsible for the abuse, but to help her untangle the, the warped ideas that she has, the misinterpretations of Scripture, her view of God, which has probably been damaged, and her view of herself. Um, both need to be repaired, and then she needs to learn to stand up for truth and to say no to sinful mistreatment.
0: It's possible that some of our thinking on this topic comes from unscriptural teaching in the church really pertaining to male headship and the value of women in society, or maybe just the men, the abusers themselves having unscriptural thinking about the roles of women and the roles of the husband uh, in marriage. And there may be some women who have experienced some kind of abuse where they were belittled, manipulated, overlooked, or just generally made to feel insignificant or like a second class citizen. But how does God view women, especially those who have been victimized? Can you share some insights about what God has to say about abuse victims and his care and concern for them? Oh my goodness. When you look in scripture,
1: that is God's heart. His heart is for the oppressed. And if we want a biblical category for abuse, it's oppression. And so, um, if you look throughout the Old Testament, particularly when God is giving his complaint to Israel about their sins, it's usually because of injustice and oppression and them not standing up for the weak and the needy. And so look, at I think it's in Isaiah 61, look, this is the fast that I have chosen to undo the cords of wickedness and, and you know, to let the oppressed go free. And I'm I'm butchering my quote, but <laughs> you know what I'm talking about that God, His heart, is always for the oppressed, and, and and when Jesus came, I love that He went out of His way to minister to those who were marginalized by society. He did not uh, give deference to the religious leaders, in fact, <laughs> He had a lot to say to them that was not very positive, but I love particularly the conversation with the woman at the well, who had been married five times and was living with somebody who was not her husband at the time. And so offered her living waters. He didn't go and condemn her. He said, look, I have, you know, I don't know what her history is. I sometimes wonder if she was abused and tossed aside. You know, we guess that perhaps she went in the middle of the day because that's not when all the other women went and people would stare at her and maybe even say things to her. But Jesus went out of his way to meet with her and did not condemn her or judge her. Um, And I think our churches, again, having elevated marriage above lives, sometimes we condemn those who end up being divorced. You know, It's not what they want. Nobody, God is not the only one who hates divorce. I can guarantee you just about everyone who's ever gone through a divorce hated every minute of it. Mm. But it doesn't mean that he didn't provide that because of the, the hardness of men's hearts.
0: I'd like to read a passage from your book and ask you to unpack it a bit for us. It goes like this, quote, when somebody you love oppresses you, it can begin to warp your view of God. Many times, my husband used scripture to keep me under control. Even worse, I used it to convince myself that I had to submit to just about anything and leaving my marriage was not an option. God hates divorce was my mantra and I believed he would be angry or disappointed in me if I gave up on my marriage. When the violence became so deadly that I had no choice but to leave, I felt as though I'd let God down. What did you ultimately learn about the gospel and how it interacted with the abusive situation you had endured for all those years? Were you able to overcome the guilt that you had about your failed marriage? Absolutely, but it took
1: a while. I will say that God is an amazing God, and about a year before I ended up um, separating from my my ex for the last time, God put me into a group. I was a homeschooling mom, and a group of us decided to start a a Bible study together, and we were studying a couple of books by Kay Arthur. Well, I had been a Christian at this point for 20-some years, and I knew the Bible really well. I mean, I had read it probably every day for most of that 20 years. But I didn't really know how to study it. And so we started out with just a couple of her, you know, more surface level, if you will, will. I don't want to call them surface level, but her introductory kinds of studies. They were not very heavy duty, but uh, the first one we did was called, Lord, Where Are You When Bad Things Happen? And I think that in that particular study, it was a study through the Book of Habakkuk mostly is what I remember. But I remember her talking about God using tragedy and suffering um, and how he sifts them through his fingers of love and redeems them. And so understanding that God was sovereign was, you know, like this huge concept and, and not only sovereign, but sovereign and good. I always knew he was in control, but sometimes I still think I might have questioned His goodness, you know, especially when you're living with abuse, you just wonder, Lord, you want me to stay here and live with this. That's what I really started to think. And so I had to change my view of God in in many ways, but that was step number one. And step number two was a book, uh, another one of her books called Lord Heal My Hurts. And just being able to dig into Scripture and to look for His heart instead of for rules and regulations. and mandates because that's kind of how I had come to read it and so I was living under the law where God finally showed me his heart and it was his heart that brought the healing and And as I connected with him and I and changing my view of God when I first separated from my husband I just put my head in Scripture I didn't know what else to do nobody I went to had any answers and so I would spend three and four hours a day just searching the scriptures and asking him to speak to me and he did. He would use scriptures like Isaiah 49, where it says, well, you say that the Lord has forgotten you. You say that I don't see you, but, and, and he compares himself with a mother. He says, but can a nursing mother forget the babe at her breast? Well, maybe she can, but I will never forget you. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands and that spoke volumes to me. I knew how much I loved my children. And I knew that my love for those children was imperfect and that he would love me that much. Starting to see his heart was, was life changing for me.
0: You mention in the book that regaining a biblical identity is really important as a survivor of abuse, writing, quote, not understanding your value to God can keep you from ever moving past the abuse you endured. And you just kind of alluded to it in the last answer. But if someone listening today is having a really hard time separating themselves from the pain of being abused, why do you counsel them to hone in on their value in God's sight? Well,
1: for one thing, I find that a lot of folks who don't know their value will end up in another abusive relationship. (laughs) Mm. It's like they um, have come to believe the lies that their abusers have told them, maybe lies they believed before they got into that abusive relationship. And again, it is very intertwined with their view of God. If they don't know who God is, then how can they know who they are? So, what I believe is that people who don't intentionally heal will end up, and I write this at the end of my workbook, if you don't intentionally heal, and that would be applying God's truths to your life, you're going to end up with probably three possible outcomes. One is that you will be chronically depressed or anxious you know be maybe be on medication for the rest of your life because you you know you've never found freedom from the trauma that you've experienced and you're probably still believing lies because that's what keeps us in bondage number two is that you would move on to another abusive relationship because that is very common when people don't know who they are in christ and and what their value is to god then they're willing to put up with more abuse they're just they're not necessarily willing, but they end up, they think that's normal. And so they they will accept more abuse because of their their, um, opinion of themselves or their view of themselves. And then finally, the last outcome that I have seen several times um, or many times over the years is that they actually will become abusive themselves because they don't know who they are you know and i think that when we don't know who we are in christ we will struggle and wrestle with insecurity we will either present as filled with shame or filled with pride and neither of those are the things that god desires for us you know jesus talks about us dying to self and losing ourselves but not in a way that we need to abase ourselves or think that we're Um, less than, because He values us, He treasures us, and Scripture is full of passages that assure us of that. But we get to this point that we don't truly believe what He says about us, then it's going to skew our lives, and we're not going to be able to live in the fullness that He desires for us. And for these victims of abuse, If they don't learn to apply these truths, then they will walk around with some kind of
0: consequence for the rest of their lives. Well, you make some really insightful comments about trying to move forward in life as an abuse survivor without maintaining a victim mentality seems really important, so I want to be sure we talk about it. You write, quote, The odd thing is, the more I complained, the less people wanted to listen. They seemed to alienate themselves from me, which made my situation even more miserable. I could have stayed in that pattern forever, but as I cried out to God, I began to realize that I would never be an overcomer until I dropped my victim mentality. Can you explain why this is an important step in the spiritual healing process for someone who has suffered abuse?
1: Well, I find that most people who are abusive actually have a victim mentality. Uh, It's interesting to me that most of the folks who come through our support group are still questioning whether or not their relationship was abusive, unless it just got extremely physically harmful. Most of them are going, well, it wasn't really abusive. In fact, I stood before a judge and said, hey, your honor, this has not been an abusive relationship. And at this point, I'd had my head slammed into a steering wheel and I'd had other um, you know incidences of abuse over the years but I didn't consider myself abused but what happens is when we start to meditate on what's happened to us the and then we start living with this victim mentality then we start also believing that the world owes us something like this has happened to me and it's not right and the world owes me Uh, and I've seen that with so many of or several I mean not always but I've seen this with many of the women who've come through our ministry and and they they won't heal and the ones who stick with us and stay in the study eventually will get past that but we've had those who just dropped out because they were just angry and they just wanted to come and vent and we don't we don't allow them to just come and vent in our support groups because we want to focus on truth and we want to focus on healing and and that's not going to happen if you're focusing and meditating on what's happened to you. That turns you into, your, your identity becomes what's happened to you rather than God, who God says you are in Christ. So they have to be willing to drop those false beliefs because you are not what has happened to you. Scripture is also filled with promises about how, yes, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all. And so we have to believe, choose to believe His promises, choose to believe that He is a Redeemer and that whatever has happened in our lives, He can keep promises to use it for our good. Um, Romans eight twenty eight, and we see examples of that with um, Genesis fifty twenty, where Joseph said, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. God is a Redeemer, and until we recognize who He is and then receive that as His children, then we're gonna continue to walk around you know, basically angry and feeling like the world owes us something. And, and again, that is the, the mentality that I see with most abusers. In fact, you know, every, almost every abuser that I've ever worked with considered themselves a, a victim.
0: Wow. That's really interesting to hear. I hadn't before. Well, I want to, we've got time for a couple more questions. And so I want to be sure that if someone's listening, who is not necessarily a abuse victim but their heart breaks and they want to know how can in the world can i better support someone in this situation or just be equipped to prepare for a future time when someone might cross my path that that needs help and and they are really struggling to get it so if we haven't been abused but we're listening today and wondering how we as a body of christ might become better equipped to support and care for those in these types of situations what is it that we need to know can you break down some of your top suggestions for believers so that we can avoid being harmful helpers when it comes to serving the needs of those suffering in domestic violence situations? Absolutely, Um, number one is
1: believe them. It blows my mind how many times a a victim of abuse will finally gather the courage to go and tell uh, their story to someone and many, many times they are not believed. Part of the reason for this is that abusers are very, bomb um, cool collected the victims have been taught to cover up and so it is shocking when you first hear it false claims of abuse are extremely low less than 5% is what I've read in the in the research so 3 to 5% and really think about it what have they got to lose for coming forward don't minimize it a lot of times we'll think well we know that guy he's so nice he couldn't it couldn't be that bad so oh, he certainly he didn't mean that I've heard that kind of counsel over and over again, you know when I ask the ladies what kind of counsel they receive, well certainly your husband didn't mean to hit you. Your husband didn't mean this. Well they don't know his heart. And so don't you know don't minimize what you're hearing. Take it seriously. Don't turn around and um, confront the abuser that can put her in danger. Don't give give her directions. So don't try to tell her what to do. She's already been controlled for years and years and she's got to learn to make her own decisions. but give her options provide her with resources, connect her with even the local domestic violence shelter, you know, to help her with a safety plan. If if she's living in fear, she probably needs to just go talk to an advocate you can connect her with Call to Peace. We're gospel-based domestic violence ministry, and we will definitely help her. She can get into our online support group if she's not near one of our local groups. And we don't want to use the terminology, why don't you just? There is no just when it comes to dealing with domestic abuse because we will say, well, why don't you just leave? She can't just leave. There has been so much control and manipulation. Sometimes it's financial control. Sometimes it's using the children. I have women who stay in situations because they know that if they go to court, they're going to have to send their children to stay with their abusive father unsupervised and they are not willing to take that risk. So they'll stay in a situation or maybe they don't even know what they have in their checking account or their, their savings account. They have no access to their money. And, a lot of times abusers will move the money out and maybe these are women who have stayed at home with you know, four and five children and for them to get a job, <laughs> it wouldn't even pay for childcare. So there's a lot of reasons they don't just do anything. So look, don't use language like, why don't you just? Don't elevate the marriage above their lives and be there to listen and to let them explain. You can say to them, well, why don't, you know, I would... Have you tried this? Or give them some options. But again, try not to be too directive because they do not need somebody else in their lives trying to control what they're doing.
0: If there is someone listening who is in this situation right now, what should she be aware of in terms of reaching out for help while also Staying safe in the process because I from what I've learned from Chris and and from your resources is that sometimes abusers can actually monitor phone calls and browsing histories and so I guess what would be some recommendations you would have for someone who is actually in the Situation right now and they are realizing, you know, maybe maybe now's the time Maybe I do need to reach out um, to get some help. What what would your suggestions be for her?
1: um well absolutely i mean modern technology has made this far more difficult for victims than ever and what we have found is that they can put uh, you know spyware on your telephone or they can um, they can monitor your location through your cell phone. So you want to make sure your location services are off. And sometimes you might even want have to reset your phone to make sure that they haven't put apps on your phone when you weren't paying attention. A lot of the ladies that we work with have had tracking devices put on their cars. They've had cameras and microphones set up in their houses so that, that uh, they could be monitored, you know, and I guess a lot of times, you know, you may or may not have an impression of whether or not your husband is savvy enough to do that sort of thing, but it's never, I would never underestimate the abilities of some of these guys to do things that you thought were beyond their knowledge and expertise, because they will find out. Hmm. Um, What we recommend is that perhaps you um, go to a public library and you do research on the the library's computer, um, you can visit websites like calledtopeace.org and then you can the. Uh, there are several sites that have information on making a safety plan. Focus Ministries, I believe it's Focus Ministries One, dot org. They have uh, information on safety planning because you need to make a plan to exit uh, if you're going to get out or. Um, just to stay safe. I would also even take a visit down and speak to an advocate at a local domestic violence shelter. Even if you think, well, I'm not physically in danger at this point, if you're living in some fear, it could become physically abusive. And so you want to talk to someone, have them go over and show you the dynamics of domestic abuse. There's a tool called the power and control wheel that I put in my book. And there's another tool that you can look up online called the controlling behaviors checklist. And so those are the types of behavior you're looking for. Educating yourself to understand is this really abuse or is this just a bad marriage? You know, so you really need to start um, educating yourself to learn what you are dealing with, you know, because if it is abusive, then chances are it's going to escalate and it's going to get worse over time. And so, you need to be prepared. One thing too, if you do take a trip to the domestic violence shelter and you think there's a possibility of having a tracker on your car, then maybe get a friend to meet a friend somewhere and have them drive you down. You know, we have advocates at Call to Peace um, who have who will take the time sometimes to go and sit with a woman and uh, as she files for a protective order or she goes uh, to court things like that but you know if you can find a good friend who's willing to sit and just be a friend that would be great and again that goes back to our people helpers to be able to provide practical support for someone like that is um, invaluable all the things that they're doing are very scary for them you know to to break out of this is it's terrifying. And I know that sounds crazy. Well, well, she's getting away from the terrifying. No, she's not. The danger level can increase after separation. In fact, you know, three fourths of the domestic violence homicides that occur in the country occur after separation. So we don't want to ever minimize the possibility. However, those who have met with domestic violence experts and have done safety planning, that statistic, you know, the statistics go way, way, way down because they have prepared themselves and they have planned. Um, But one way or the other, even if you stay in it, you're not necessarily protecting yourself because it does tend to escalate over time.
0: Well, we've got time for one more question on the show, so I would like to invite you to do something that I ask every guest on the Hope and Help Project to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is a survivor of domestic abuse. Maybe this person is wrestling with feelings of guilt and shame, and they don't know if real joy and healing is something within their reach. Perhaps they're grappling with post-traumatic stress symptoms from the experience, and they feel like they will always be damaged goods, what would you say to that person to encourage them to turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ to find their hope and their peace? Well, I would say
1: that our God is a healer. He makes all things new, it says in Scripture, and He can make you new. You know, I, I know that there were times when I felt like getting out was impossible and then I thought that I would feel that way forever, but God truly is a healer. And the interesting thing to me is that because I stuck my head in Scripture, and I not only just was reading Scripture, but I was praying Scripture. I was quoting it out loud to God over and over and over again. Um, And I would even—and I would sing when I got really overwhelmed. I would sing and worship Him. And I tell people, I think one of the reasons that was so powerful is because I had made my problems bigger than God. But when I started to do those things, it made Him bigger. It put Him back on the throne. So basically, I was meditating, and the interesting thing is that, you know, I I knew I had the symptoms of PTSD when I got out, but the interesting thing is that in the last couple of years, I've learned so much more about trauma, and I was looking at a brain scan of someone who was studying, and basically, the left side of the brain was lit up. So, you know, cause I, in my biblical counseling, I would tell people, you know, start reading these verses and quote them. And they would tell me, well, that's not really working. It's not helping my PTSD. Well, then I saw another brain scan of somebody who was meditating and the whole brain was lit up. And we know that trauma is held in probably the right brain, brain stem, not the left brain at all. And so if they are not doing something that is, is reaching the entire brain, then healing is very elusive. It's hard to come by. (laughs) And so what I believe is that I meditated my way to healing from PTSD. Hmm. And you know, it was, it was singing, it was worship, and it was meditating on his truth over the lies that I had come to believe. And so um, there is a difference between just quoting scripture and meditating on scripture. And so that is a very, very healing thing to do. So if you really draw near to God, God, I believe will heal you. If you seek him for who he is and, and get to know him. And even as part of my meditation, I used to imagine myself, you know, that passage in Zephaniah, it says that the mighty one, the, the holy one, the, the war, it's like he's a warrior king, but he's also, it shows this picture of him rejoicing over his child. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will quiet you with his love. And so I would just imagine myself, you know, and I would say, Daddy, hold me because I'm, you know, I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what else to do. There's good meditation. So you imagine the good um, because we sit there and imagine the bad and we are meditating on the wrong things all day long. So I believe that as you grasp hold of him and the truth about his character, and I talk an awful lot about that in my book, and I have even a script, scripture database that talks about knowing him, as you come to know him more, and then you will know who you are to him. And as you know those two truths, you're going to find healing that you thought was never possible.
0: Well, thank you so much for those words of encouragement. I'm just so, again, thankful that you took the time to join us today just to share some insights for those of us who don't really know much about domestic abuse and you know what is all involved, but then especially to those listening uh, who Unfortunately, this is part of their life story and they just need help and they don't know where to get it. And so I'm thankful you were here today to be able to offer some wisdom in that area. Now, if there's someone listening who wants to get connected with you in your ministry, where can they go to check out your various resources and programs that you have to offer? Well,
1: they can go to our website which is called C A L L E D T O and then peace. Dot org. They can connect with us there, they can sign up for our newsletter. Um, we are nationwide, and so we have you know conferences annually, and we do more things here locally in the Raleigh area, but we have an online support group, and we are starting multiple support groups across the nation. We actually have an online forum for anyone who would like to lead a support group. We also have an advocacy course that we have started when we started um, back in January. It's a one-year course. I've been very grateful to have that opportunity because what we have found is that those who become advocates can actually change the outcome for abuse survivors in a very big way. Uh, We've gone into churches here in the Raleigh area and worked with pastors and it's changed the way the church responded to the to the victims and they were actually able to provide them the support and help they needed and they provided accountability to their, to their abusive partners. So um, when we can see things like that happen, it's amazing. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing. I think the biggest contribution that Called to Peace is going to make um, with the church is to be able to train up advocates to come alongside and work with these who are being oppressed in their homes. We also offer counseling, um, advocacy, and we even have an emergency fund here locally for our, the folks who are in our groups. And we hope to see that happening in the groups that start up across the country as well. And then finally, we offer education for people helpers. We do um, periodic conferences. We'll be having Chris Moles come out in April of 2020. He was gonna do a, one day on Thursday, um, April the 4th, on Developing a domestic violence policy and um, a domestic violence response team in your church. And then on Friday evening and Saturday, we'll just be having a general conference for people helpers and survivors. So we will have some breakout sessions for survivors as well.
0: And then right now is domestic violence awareness month and i know you guys have got a bunch of activity going on for this specific month of october 2019 and one of those things being a fundraiser can you tell me a little bit more about what the fundraiser is hoping to achieve and how people can get involved Absolutely. And if they would
1: like, uh, if they're on Facebook, uh, if your listeners are on Facebook, they can reach out to us or they can connect with us at our Call to Peace Ministries Facebook page. We have been doing live interviews all month long. We have interviews with survivors and we're going live every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, interviewing experts on domestic abuse. But, because we have grown so quickly, we have about 50 women uh, who also usually are mothers so 50 families reaching out to us each month for help and because of that astronomical growth we are just having a real hard time keeping up with the volume of requests that we receive and so we need uh, we absolutely have to um, bring on more staff and so we have a fall fundraiser going going along with domestic violence awareness month and somebody has generously offered us a ten thousand dollar matching grant and if we can match those funds, that will go a long way towards us being able to bring in some, uh, I mean, we basically just need some gatekeepers, people to field all the requests we are getting. We have several volunteers in place, but some of these things are a little bit too complex for them. I mean, we really need trained advocates and we need most of the people who want to work with us are also survivors of abuse, so they cannot afford to work endless hours without pay so um, i still only take a part-time salary for a full-time and a half job (laughs) yeah and you know god has provided for the extra but we definitely need um we have to bring on new staff to minister directly to these women or we're going to have to start turning people away and we don't want that to happen here in the raleigh area we have something called pinwheels for peace where if you can do your donation through that we will put we're putting pinwheels out like purple pinwheels because that's the national color for domestic violence awareness we're putting them out on the main thoroughfares here in raleigh just to help raise awareness but every dollar will be matched Um, we're asking ten dollars for each for each ten dollars you give we'll put out a pinwheel and um, even in honor of a survivor or a a victim of abuse that you have known and loved. So again, this matching grant goes through the end of October, but we are always, always looking for funding because this is just not a cause that is near and dear to many people's hearts, except for those who have already been through it. And I tell people we we operate on widow's mites we have mm-hmm. a lot of people who give very sacrificially, but all they can give is just, you know, it's a small amount and we need people who can come along and give out of their abundance, not just their need. So um, we would love for folks to partner with us become monthly donors, um, because that would be our bread and butter and how we, we survive. But we just have such a heart to help. And um, it's getting to the point that we're not able to provide the way we want to because of our rapid growth so if they would come alongside us and partner with us that would be such a huge blessing not only to us but to those who are oppressed.
0: Well thank you for sharing those uh, points of contact and various programs and of course the fundraising information I will be sure to link to that in the show notes of the program so if you are interested you can scroll down to the show notes click the link there and that will direct you to joy's website at called to peace and you can learn all about what the ministry has to offer and ways that you can support it and then again I would recommend checking out the Facebook page because she's uh, been providing working really hard to provide some really valuable resources and interviews in regards to domestic Violence Awareness Month. So check it out if you can. And Joy, thank you again so much for taking time out of such a busy month for you. I know you are just overloaded with activity. i just so thankful that you took the time today to chat about such an important topic. Well, thank you, Christine.
1: I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, anytime I can raise awareness, I am happy to do it. So thank you.
0: Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Joy's book, website, and other helpful resources. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel, hope, and help, for life's challenging problems, visit FaithfulSparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on The Hope and Health Project.